Well, and as you take your seats, I would encourage you to take your copy of God's Word together with mine and turn in it to John chapter 15 as we pick up our study here in this great chapter that has been such an encouragement and honestly just such a challenge to my own heart. I trust that it has been in yours as well, and there are still powerful things in store for us here from this text that we must dive into together. You know, in in the backyard of the parsonage where I grew up, there was a large old fruit tree that was positioned right next to a bubbling, meandering creek bed where frogs croaked and crickets sang their songs. And you might imagine that a fruit tree in such a perfect location would produce the most perfect kind of fruit. And I can remember as a, as a small young boy climbing all through the branches of that tree with my bucket in tow, filling it up with the best apples that money couldn't buy because they were my apples. They, they, they were ours, you see. And so I, I took my bucket and I scrambled through the back screen door of our kitchen there in that house. And to my horror, as I dumped out my haul on the counter, my mom told me that the fruit that I had so carefully collected for her in the hopes of having apple pie was utterly inedible because I had picked her a bucket of crab apples. <laughs> and to prove their inedibility, she pulled out a knife and cut one in half and outspilled onto the countertop a bunch of worms to our horror and disgust. You know, I, I never ate a single piece of fruit off that tree in all the years that I lived in that house obviously, because our fruit, it was bad. And so every fall, when harvest time rolled around, the fruit would fall off the bad tree, and it would rot, filling the yard with a bad smell, and there was just nothing good about it. Until one day, enough was enough, and the men of the church came around with a chainsaw, and they cut that tree down, soaked it with gasoline, and put a match to it. You know, that tree, it it stood in my young mind, lodged deeply as a very powerful illustration. Bad fruit gets burned. And to this day, I cannot read John 15 without thinking about my crabapple climbing tree. And that childhood memory that I just shared with all of you, it is exactly the same illustration that Jesus has already given us here in John chapter 15, is it not? The lesson being that a branch that bears edible fruit, it gets pruned carefully and cared for well until it produces great fruit. But a branch that produces bad fruit or even worse, no fruit, it eventually gets chopped down, cut off, and destroyed. And over the past couple weeks, we've been learning about that image. We've been looking carefully at it, and I would point your attention back with me to the heart of Jesus' image that he gave to us back in verse 5 of chapter 15. He says there, if you can read it with me, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. 
See, we've already learned together that the key to having a fruitful Christian life, the key to having the life of Christ at all, is that we would be people who would abide in connectivity to Jesus Christ. We've already learned that from this text. And and last week, we took the time to stop and look at the the individual step-by-step careful instructions for how to bear fruit, for how, specifically, to abide in Christ. It's as we abide in His Word, it's as we abide in His love, it's as we abide in His joy. To abide in Christ means that we are connected to Him at every level. All of Him and all of me and all of me and all of Him. It means that just as tightly as a branch is connected to a trunk, so too am I connected to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And that is the key to bearing much good fruit. That's how fruit gets produced. And that's the question we answered. But what does fruit look like in practice? See, that's a question we have yet to answer. And it's the one that Jesus is going to answer here for us in verses 12 through 17. When you follow the instructions of Christ to abide in the vine, what is going to be produced in your life? What does a fruitful life actually look like? See, over the past two weeks, we've already covered the importance of bearing fruit. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the instructions for bearing fruit, but today we're going to look at the impact of what it looks like when you actually follow the instructions, because these next verses, they are the application of fruitfulness, if you will. And there are going to be three points of application here that we need to look at in detail as Jesus applies his image now to our life and shows us what he expects our lives now to look like specifically. Now, last week, we brought some practical detail to the idea of abiding. What I want you to see here is practical detail to the idea of fruitfulness. And so we have to begin by by looking at the way fruitfulness manifests itself. As we're going to see in here in these verses, it's going to manifest itself in sacrificial love within your life. And just like last week, we brought some detail to this concept of abiding. This week, we need to bring some detail to this concept of what being fruitful actually looks like. Because both of those ideas are kind of intangible ideas. What does it mean to abide? We looked at that last week. But similarly to fruit, spiritual fruit is similarly an intangible concept as well. When we're told that we must bear spiritual fruit, what does that actually mean? We're not talking about the fruit basket on your countertop with apples, oranges, and bananas. What kind of fruit is Jesus referring to here when he admonishes us to fruitfulness? What brand of fruit specifically is he talking about? Hint, hint. He's not talking about Chiquita or Dole here. He's talking about a very different kind of fruit, and we need to define that fruit here for ourselves, so we're all using the same terms. Here it is. To be fruitful simply means to show Christ-likeness. It means that our lives look like Christ's life. After all, In keeping with the image, just as an apple tree always produces apples, so too does Christ, the vine, always produce Christ-likeness in us, the branches. To be fruitful is to manifest the character of Christ in and through my Christianity. That's what fruitfulness looks like. And friends, that's why you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And what is the the result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? It's what's called the, the fruit of the Spirit. 
And what is the fruit of the Spirit but a picture of Jesus? For Jesus and the Spirit are one. And so if the Spirit of Jesus now lives in you, what do you think he's going to produce? He's going to produce in you a carbon copy of Jesus and his character. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Because after all, is not Jesus the perfect model of all the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Because against those things, we see, when we compare ourselves, a perfect picture of who Jesus actually is. All of those things were true of him. And they, through the Spirit, are now what is being produced in you. So, when we say, be fruitful, what do we mean? We mean, very simply this, demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Or you could say it this way, look like Jesus Christ. Because those ideas, fruitfulness, demonstrating fruit of the Spirit, looking like Christ, that's all describing the very same thing. That's what fruitfulness looks like in our lives. So knowing that, let's come back to our text. You see, so far here in chapters 13 through 15, Jesus has been referring to his commands. And so far in these chapters, for the most part, they have been plural. Look at chapter 15, verse 10 with me. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, plural, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments, plural, and abide in his love. But here now, beginning in verse 12, Jesus is going to boil down all of his commandments to a bottom line, to a common denominator. There is one common denominator that, that undergirds and underlies all of the character of Christ that is now being formed in you. And it's stated for us very clearly here in verse 12. This is my commandment singular, wrapping its arms around all the other commands of Christ in Scripture. Here is the commandment that undergirds everything, that you now love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. That's how Jesus sums up what fruitfulness in you and me is going to look like, that, that we would love one another as he has loved us. Now that's a statement that should cause us now to sit up and take notice, hitch up our holsters and mount up. Because that, my friends, is a pretty tall order. If you are abiding in Christ, if you're bearing fruit, this is what your life is going to look like. You will love as he loved. Now let's just consider that for a moment before we drive it home and apply it to our own context. How, I ask you, did Jesus love you? This is so foundational that we need to take a few moments and just unspool this concept here a little bit for ourselves because the answer was introduced to us back at the beginning of this section. Go with me back to chapter 13, verse 1. Remember, chapter 13 opens up the second volume of John's gospel, the second half, the second act. And how does that second act open? It opens with this statement in verse 1. He loved his own who were in the world, having loved them to the end. What does it look like for him to have loved them to the end? Well, that is exactly what chapter 15, verse 13 explains. Here's what it looks like for him to have loved us to the end. Greater love has no man than this, that a man, in this case, namely Jesus, would lay down his life 
for his friends. Now, let's think about that for a second. Because who were you when he took this act of laying his life down for you? You were not his friend. You were his sworn enemy, intent on mortal combat, hostile in mind and opposed in deed. That is who you are. As Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, well, I should say that is who you were. Here's who you once were. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says it this way. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us, the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. I mean, who dies for someone who has no need, right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, the greatest need imaginable, that's when Christ died for you. That is how he has loved us, and greater love has no man than this, than he would be willing to do this for you. But don't just gloss over that statement and say, wow, he died for me. No, allow the cost of that to sink into your minds and settle down into your hearts for a moment. Because see, it wasn't just that Jesus died in the flesh, was buried and then raised for you. No, in that sovereign act on your behalf, he assumed in his perfect holy person the fullness of all the guilt and penalty of your depraved sinfulness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For your sake he was made to be sin for you. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for you, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that is how Jesus loved you. And now in John chapter 15, that is the standard to which we are being called for how we are to love one another. You want to know what fruitfulness looks like in real life? It looks like you loving the body of Christ in the same way that Christ loved you. Humbly, sacrificially, proactively, powerfully. Now, at this point in the text, as we read these verses, we might be tempted to think, now, surely this concept of laying down my life for my friends, well, that's hyperbole, right? It's an overstatement for the purpose of effect. Jesus doesn't actually expect that from me, does he? Well, let's let the Apostle John interpret the statement of Jesus here for us for just a minute, because after all, the Apostle John was the one who was in the room with Jesus when this happened. He was the one who is best positioned to tell us exactly what Jesus meant when he said this and whether or not he was overstating his case or not. See, John wrote a commentary on this night. It's called 1 John. And here is what the Apostle John says about this very statement here in John 15. He says it in 1 John 3, verse 16, because he quotes the statement from Jesus. He says, By this we now know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. Did Jesus mean the rest of it? Well, we, John says, ought to lay down our lives now for the brothers. And rather than just letting us off the hook with that statement, no, John puts his finger into the middle of the heart and he just presses down really hard and he says, here's what that means in practice. If anybody's got the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, How does the love of God abide in that one? That's really convicting, my friends. And it opens up a whole vista of application now for us to think through. 
See, when Jesus says that abiding in the love of God looks like us loving each other in a very sacrificial way, he means every word of it here. Everything he says here in John 15, he means in the most literal way possible. Which means, now, if we are to be a church of fruit-bearing Christians, our love for one another must not only be present, it's got to be profound. So what does that look like at the street level here in the life of the church? You know, I, I, I posed that question to all of our pastoral staff this week, and we've had multiple conversations about what this looks like because we really need to make sure that we understand it. After all, this is the way that Jesus says fruitfulness is going to be manifested. So what does it actually look like? And that's important because in the world in which you and I live, none of us are being asked to sacrifice our physical life for one another. That is just simply not a demand that is being made in 21st century America in the church today. So does that mean that now I'm off the hook? If that demand's not made for me, then I don't have to fulfill it. Well, not so fast, Speed Racer, because there's a number of ways that that principle can be applied to us. And we know that if we look at the rest of the way that Jesus loved us while he was here on earth with us. And that's what I want us to do this morning is to look at the way that Jesus loved his fellow man, his followers during the time of his incarnation and seek to apply those principles now to this place. See, this command, it still has really big implications for us. I'm going to give you four that our pastoral staff has been discussing throughout the week, some in person and some on a never-ending text stream. And we're going to get really practical here now. There are hundreds of ways that these principles could be applied, but I want to give you four broad categories so we can start to put some feet to this concept. Let's, let's not just look at it in principle. It's the idea of fruit. No, let's see what does it actually look like now in our own context. See, the very first category that we could look at of what this means for us is that there must be a proactive kind of pursuit to the relationships that we have with one another. Loving as Christ loved means proactively pursuing relationships with others for their good with no benefit or no expectation of any kind of benefit in return rather than looking at relationships that will only benefit me. You see, when Jesus came to this planet and stepped into the form of a man and took on the fullness of humanity, he intentionally pursued relationships to us. If it were up to us to just find God and establish relationship with him, we would be in really deep trouble because we could never have accomplished such a feat on our own. No, it took Jesus proactively pursuing us. That is how he loved us, and that's how we're being called now to love one another. You know, I will often hear people in the church say to me, Pastor, I just don't feel connected to the body. And there are many reasons for this practically. And perhaps you are somebody who is being very intentional and proactive to reach out to those who are around you and yet you still feel this way. Here's my, my pastoral counsel to you. Don't stop. Don't grow weary in the doing of good. Be patient. Recognize that, that relationships, the kind that Jesus is talking about here, they take time. You know, Pastor Jerry shared some very helpful pastoral perspective with me this week. He said this, he said, it is unfair to measure our new relationships against the standard of, of those well-seasoned relationships. 
we tend to forget as we look around saying, man, those people are just so close. I wish I had that kind of a relationship. We tend to forget the fact that those kinds of relationships with that kind of closeness and, and love that is being expressed there, they took not days, nor weeks, not even months to form, but years. They required the traversing of trials together as you felt the painfulness of what life had in store, as, as God brought trials into life. People travel those trials together, and, and what binds their heart together is their oneness in Christ as they walk through those trials. And so you can't look at those kinds of relationships and say, because I don't have that, I'm just not connected here. No, you can have that, but it's going to take you time. Be patient, be gracious, lean in. Relationships take time. So pursue genuine Christian love and don't grow weary in doing good. But you know, the, the number one reason why people don't feel connected is because, honestly, often, they just haven't made the effort to connect. As the women learned, for instance, at our recent podcast in Pie Night, we all can have a really selfish tendency when we go to engage in relationships within the body of Christ to have a mindset that says, look, here I am. Why aren't you getting out of your seat and coming to talk to me? Why aren't you seeking to serve me? For after all, here I am. I took the trouble to show up. Did I not? Instead, we need to have a mindset that says, no, there you are. Forget me. I see you. And so I will come to you and I will seek to proactively pursue you. See, a Christ-like love in this way, one that proactively pursues, it constantly has its radar up, looking to love the person that Jesus has put directly in front of you. For instance, one of the worst things that you can do in the body of Christ is to walk into this room and plant yourself in a chair and wait for others to come talk to you. No, to have genuine, loving, vibrant relationships, have you thought about taking the first step? And if everybody has that mindset of there you are, there will be organic relationships that over time will be formulated and developed. I promise you that if you walk up to somebody in this room and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, what's your name? Nobody here is going to bite you. That's a guarantee I'll give you, all right? Just love each other in that way. Pursue relationship to each other. That's the first thing that Jesus did for us, and it's what we should do for one another. But here's what else this means. It means that as we pursue those relationships, we've got to be intentional in our engagement of them. You know, in the New Testament, there are over a hundred different one another commands that are given to us that flesh out this idea of loving one another. And here's the thing that I've learned both through study of the word and through observation about the one another commands. Get this. They don't happen by accident. They only happen as you seek to intentionally engage in these kinds of practices, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to come alongside one another, to exhort one another. Those are things that you have to set out to do in order to actually do them. They're not just going to happen. And that's very important for us to understand because that's exactly how Jesus loved us when he showed up on the earth. See, Christ didn't just come to earth and love us by being here. No, his, his interactions were extremely intentional. 
where he identified needs and then he sought to meet those needs. I would submit to, your, to, to you for evidence what Jesus does in John chapter 21 with the apostle Peter, right? Jesus doesn't just go back to heaven and leave his relationship to Peter in shambles. No, he shows up and has a conversation face to face with Peter on purpose, seeking to restore his fallen disciple. Peter has rejected and denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. And so what does Jesus do? He shows up and makes an opportunity by which he can intentionally engage with Peter and restore him, to care for him. See, there was an intentionality in the way that Christ loved, and so too should there be an intentionality in the way that we love. See, to love the body intentionally, friends, that means you've got to be with the body. You can't love the way Christ loved if you sneak in the back at the beginning and bolt out the door at the end. Intentionally loving as Christ has loved means coming early and planning to stay late because relationships, I don't see a lot of relationships being formed as I'm up here preaching right now. Relationships are only formed as you're spending time together. And so you, you've got to be willing to make the commitment to do that. If you go to a small group, for instance, and you leave as soon as the teaching is over, well, you're, you're cutting yourself off from the benefit of Christian fellowship. Stick around. Ask some questions. More importantly, point their eyes towards Jesus. See, that's what it looks like to love as Jesus loved. It means being present and intentional with that presence. You know, I've learned a lot from one of our elders, Doug Hayward. He's not here today, so I feel very free to embarrass him in not one but both services. And he taught me this practice. He said that every Sunday before he comes to church, he and Lynn pray in the car, Lord, put people before us today who, who, need, who need encouragement and empower us now to offer your grace and mercy to them. That's what it looks like to be intentional, to do what you do on purpose, to engage in the body that screams, I love Jesus. And so I'll love you too. That's what loving like Jesus loved looks like. But here's another way to put this into practice. It looks like sacrificial service. See, loving as Jesus loved means that we'll be eager to identify and meet the needs that are around us. Because when you find a need, when the Lord puts it before you, which if you're intentionally looking for them, he will. There's needs everywhere you look. Do you do everything in your power to meet that need to the extent of, of your ability? After all, when Jesus came to this earth, how did he love you? Well, Mark chapter 10 tells us very clearly that he did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Friends, that looks like you seeking to engage in the needs that you see around you. Remember 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, God how does God's love abide in that one? So what's that look like? Well, one very practical way is that this looks like the manifestation of true biblical hospitality between us. It means we, we seek to find opportunities outside of Sunday morning to, to be together and to provoke each other to further love and to good deeds. See, hospitality, that doesn't mean entertainment over dinner. No, biblical hospitality means using all of my material goods and abilities to meet the need of somebody else. That could include dinner, but it's so much more beyond that. It means me actively sacrificing my time and goods for the benefit of someone else. 
That's what sacrificial love, like the love of Christ, translates into here in our midst. Here's another thing that it means. Here's the fourth category that I would give to you. Loving as Christ's love means that there will be a transparent openness between us as we share the reality and the fullness of our life together. Look, when Jesus came to this earth, it was with the fullness of human experience, which means that there were highs and there were lows and there were ups and there were downs and there were hard things and there were good things, there were happy things and sad things. And Jesus shared all of those things with the men in his circle. You see, he went through all of those highs and all of those lows together with them. And we know that because in the Gospel of John, have we not seen him rejoicing with joy at the wedding of Cana? And have we not also seen him saying to his followers, my heart is really deeply troubled. You see, he had the fullness of the range of everything that happens in a human life. He had that happen with him. And what did he do? He proceeded to share that with others and use it to instruct them. There was a a transparency and an openness in the way that he displayed that kind of love to his followers. And so if he, being the perfect man, was willing to be transparent about what was going on and where he was at, should we also not too be willing to do the same thing with one another, knowing that we are not perfect? Look, a church where everybody walks around pretending to be paragons of perfection (laughs) is not a church that is loving well as Christ loved. Because when you present a facade of perfection to those who are around you within the body of Christ, here's what you're actually saying. I don't need you, but you you probably do need me. Not, Not only, friends, is that really proud spiritually, but it's not true because we do need each other. Galatians 5 through 6 is is fascinating in this regard. You know, the the women in the Wednesday Bible study here in the church, we're studying this. If you're in the Wednesday Bible study and you were in Galatians 6 this week, let let me see your hand. Yeah, see, a lot of you were studying this. Here's how the Apostle Paul fleshes this out for us. I, I, it's interesting, immediately after Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, He goes on in Galatians 6 to call for the open sharing of our life with each other, all of it, both good and bad. Here's the outline of Galatians 6. He starts out by saying, confront sin amongst yourselves and restore those who are fallen. Deal with sin. But then he goes on and he says, and also beyond just sin, you need to share your burdens with one another. Those things that are hard, those things that are bad, Share them with each other. You need each other's help to bear up under those burdens. But it's not just the bad and the hard. No, he goes on later in chapter 6, and he calls upon the believers to exercise the fruit of the Spirit to, listen now, share the good things in your life. All those things that you have received because you've, you've gotten the words, instruction in your life, all the transformative work that God has done, be sure to share that amongst yourselves. You don't just share your burdens, you also share your fruit. You don't just share your trials, you also share your triumphs. See, part of me loving you well, part of you loving me well, is a willingness to share my burdens and confess my sin and talk eagerly about what God is up to in my life. Biblical love looks like sharing the good and the bad, the totality of my spiritual life. Reciprocally, it it also means being willing to receive from you both your burdens and your triumphs. Do you want to know this week 
what was the greatest and single most powerful encouragement and motivation to my own Christian walk as your pastor? I will tell you, it was seeing, friends, Christ formed in you. There were multiple situations this week where I stood back and observed you, this body, bearing one another's burdens. Multiple situations where I saw you meeting each other's needs. Multiple situations where I saw two or more of you rejoicing in the goodness of God's triumph in your life over sin. I saw you confessing your sin to one another and seeking to strengthen and build each other up. What was I seeing as I witnessed those things from a pastoral perspective? I was seeing Christ-likeness being formed in you. And as I saw Christ formed in you in remarkable ways, I stood back and I said to myself, I want to be like the Jesus that I see being demonstrated in these people. See, that is the impact of what happens when a body of Christ loves each other the way that Christ is calling us to here in these verses. We all take steps forward in our further Christ-likeness. And so we can't ignore these commands and say, well, that's not the kind of fruitfulness that I desire to engage in. No, this is the kind of fruitfulness that Jesus has given to us that we would love each other just as He has loved us. After all, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You know, it, it is not a coincidence that the fruit of the Spirit are all relational activities, things that, that must be demonstrated in the context of us being together. See, showing the fruit of the Spirit, what's first on the list? Love. All the fruits of the Spirit, the character of Christ that now must be manifested in us, it all flows out of this single command that Jesus gives to us here. And that requires that you be present, that you be plugged in, that you be passionate. Because loving as Jesus loved and your newfound ability to abide in that love, that is the pinnacle of the life that Jesus is offering here. Here's the principle that we're learning and need to take away. If you live to love, you will soon love to live. Because not only will you have life, you'll have a fruitful life that demonstrates your connectivity to the person of Jesus Christ. And yes, if you and I... If we're faithful to do this, it will cost us time, maybe even money, maybe even emotional stock. And it's going to require humility and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control and goodness and faithfulness and joy. To love as Christ has loved is going to mean that you have to look like Christ in everything. But if you pursue His love, you will soon find yourself fulfilling the wholeness of Christ's character being formed in you. And that's why Jesus says, it all begins with your willingness to love as I have loved you. For no greater love exists than this, that you would be willing to love sacrificially, laying down your life for a friend. Now that is a really tall order. I know it is, because I can see it written all over your faces right now. And Jesus knows it which is why in the next two verses he goes on to help us understand why it is so important. Here's why our fruitfulness matters. It's because we have an informed friendship with Christ. 
The reason why this matters is because Jesus has called us, all of us who know him, his friends. And here's the inescapable logic of these next two verses. Considering that, why would you not want to love each other? Look, if he, being perfect God, made you, sinful man, to be his friend rather than his enemy, then how in the world could I not see you, another friend of God, as being the friend of me? See, that is the motivation that we need to understand. This is why this matters. And so we need to just take a moment here and seek to really unwind what it means to truly be someone's friend. How do we apply this motivation now in our relationships to each other? Well, we have to quickly understand this because I think very often we get this idea of friendship confused. Friendship is not us doing fun stuff together or spending every waking moment together. Now, those things, they're fine and good, may be the results of friendship, but they should not be confused with the substance of biblical friendship. What is biblical friendship? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What is it to be the friend of Christ? It is to have the same desires, the same objectives, the same goals. It means to be aligned with the same outlook to Jesus, to pursue the same common cause that Jesus has. That is friendship biblically designed. See, Jesus now calls you friend if you are willing to align your purposes and causes with him. To be someone's friend, therefore, it means that you and I in this body, we now share a common cause. That is the formation of Jesus within us. We share a common goal that we would step into heaven together with one another. And so we share common pursuits, namely that we would aid one another in the pursuit of our goals. That's what friendship in the body of Christ looks like. We know that because that's what our friendship with Jesus looks like. Look at what he says there in verse 15. He explains exactly how this friendship manifests itself. He says, I have given you all the information about God that you need. Everything that he had heard from the Father, he has made known to us. All the information about God that we need to have in order to have a relationship to God, we've got. Jesus demonstrated his friendship to us by fixing our eyes on heaven. That's what friends do. That's how friends come alongside and aid one another in the demonstration of true friendship. See, true friendship, Christ-like friendship, it's defined as me pointing your eyes toward Christ, the one who is our common cause, just as Christ pointed your eyes to the Father. See, he doesn't just tell us here, love, because now you're the friend, because I say so. No, he explains the importance of it. He says, you have an informed friendship. You now having your eyes on heaven are able to help each other have one another's eyes on heaven. See, you're not just a slave who is commanded to do whatever he says without thinking. No, you're truly a friend. He has explained himself and the Father to you. And that's the reason why our manifestation of friendship amongst each other matters so much because if we have been made friends of him how could we not be friends to each other and if he showed us his friendship by revealing the father to us 
we show each other our friendship by pointing our eyes mutually back towards Jesus. So I, I, I ask you this morning, when, when you think about the body of Christ that is around you, do you see these people as being your friends? Do you understand the idea of friendship the way that Jesus does? And if you do, do you seek to point the eyes of your friends towards heaven? That's the purpose of being part of a body. That's what friends do, and we know it because that's what Jesus did for you. Now, there's one more point here that Jesus intends for us to remember, and I'm going to take a few moments to explain this to us. It's how this kind of fruitfulness materializes in our lives. You know, a message like this, it can be a little overwhelming because the bar has been set so high. And I know that because I myself spent all week long being very convicted by this text myself. And I kept coming back to the same question, but how? <laughs> how am I to love as Jesus has loved? I cannot generate this kind of love on my own. It's just impossible. How does this happen? And it's a really good thing that Jesus anticipated my question and maybe yours too because he wraps up this explanation of fruitfulness with a powerful reminder of where our strength comes from. See, your ability to do this depends entirely upon your connectivity to him. Verse 16, he says, look, you did not choose me. I chose you. Isn't that how we came to salvation? To have a relationship with Jesus in the first place? Ephesians 1.4, he chose you before the foundations of the world. Romans 8.29, he came to you and made you alive, having predestined you for adoption as sons. He is also, therefore, the one who has prepared good works beforehand, that now you and I, we should walk in them together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And it's that fruitfulness of walking in the good works that, that he has prepared beforehand for us that he's calling us to remember. Here is what he's saying. Just as you had no power in and of yourself to generate your own salvation, so too do you have no power in and of yourself to generate your fruitfulness. Your fruitfulness and your ability to be fruitful comes from the very same place that your ability to know me in the first place came from. Remember, I'm the one who chose you, and therefore I am also the one who has now appointed you to be fruitful. And friends, that is such an encouraging point for us to remember. He's pointing us back here to remember the reality that just as, as your salvation depended entirely upon the power of God, so too now does your fruitfulness depend entirely upon the power of Christ in and through you. It's why Jesus said back in verse 4, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, your life will be fruitful. You will find the capacity and the ability to love just as I have loved in a sacrificial kind of way because you abide in me. What does that mean? You abide in his word, his mind governing your thoughts. You abide in his love, his desires governing your desires. You abide in his joy, his feelings and affections governing your emotions. Now all of you in all of him. See, that is the only way that you and I, we, can hope to live a life that reflects the character of Christ. It's only as we dwell in connection to him 
that we can bear fruit. For apart from him, I can't bear more fruit any more than I can generate my own salvation. Now, I find it very interesting that it's only after Jesus has reminded us about the source of our fruit-bearing power that now he returns one final time in verse 17. Look there with me and says, knowing that I am your source of strength for these things, these things I command you so that you will love one another. My friends, the disciples missed a lot of stuff this night. But there's no way they could have confused his point here. Because over the last three chapters, Jesus has introduced this new commandment as being the baseline of life in his family. He's literally made this statement frontwards. He's turned it around. He said it backwards. He started our text today with it. He ended our text today with it. And everything in between in these chapters, it's all splashed in bold color on a canvas of love. Because after all, that is the heart of the Christian faith. It's a message that teaches us that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And now you and I, we are his friends if we do what he has commanded us to do. What does that mean? It means that we must love. And that is a full-throated, maximum-volume kind of statement that Jesus has made here in these chapters. Will we do it? Will we listen? These are the very last words of Jesus to his followers as a group before he makes his way to the cross. Surely these words stuck in the minds of his disciples. And so I ask us this morning, will they stick in our minds as well? Because this, this is what a fruitful life truly looks like. You know, this morning we're going to close our time in the Word by, by standing and singing Jesus. What a friend for sinners. With Him, we are fruitful. Without Him, we are nothing and have nothing. So let us express that in praise to Him and indeed towards one another.